Okay, back around that way, everybody, and go back around. We use the answer in Genesis curriculum. We believe it prepares our children for going into the public school system or just even into their neighborhood. It's very apologetically based, and um, our children are memorizing verses that they would be well prepared for every good work. Again, if you did not bring a Bible with you today, we'd like for you to follow along, and there should be one in front of you underneath the seat. If there isn't, if you raise your hands, the ushers will bring one to you. Uh, so if you need a Bible, raise your hand. If not, go ahead and turn your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, and then stand for the reading of God's Word. Through the Lord's wisdom, last Thursday night, we started the Gospel of Mark. Mark's gospel is Peter's version of the gospel, and it's going to be really cool as we're able to go through these two books together in that a lot of the things that you see, which we may consider to be Peter's failures, we'll see in 1 Peter, as Peter is now an elder statesman within the church, Peter went on to learn his lesson. Scott, can you shine some marvelous light upon these people here? There you go. We're going to be doing an introduction today, and then we have a theological concept, so we'll just be looking at the first two verses. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Once again, Father, we just come before you, Lord. And even in that second verse, we see the importance that you are lending right off to this epistle as we have that picture of the Holy Trinity. And so, Father, I pray that you would teach us and instruct us this morning. Once again, even as Peter was prepared and did amazing things, prepare us, Father, for the things that you would have for us in our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. Now, when we last left our hero, Peter, he and Jesus were walking along the banks of the Sea of Galilee, and it was there that Jesus told him, we see in John chapter 21, verses 18 through 19, most assuredly, or this is something definite, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished, and when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. And so when Jesus first approached Peter, back in the beginning of John, he says, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And the last words that we see in the Gospels of Jesus speaking to Peter, he's telling him once again to follow him. Why is he telling him to follow him? Because Peter failed. Peter said, hey, I'll die for you, Lord. Jesus had just spoken of his crucifixion. I'm willing to give of my life for you. But when the opportunity came, he couldn't stand even in the face of a slave girl. And Peter, Peter, understanding the depth of his failure, was ashamed and went back to fishing. But it was in the midst of that, once again in John chapter 21, that the Lord met Peter as he meets us where we're at in the midst of our trials, strengthened Peter, recommissioned Peter, and sent Peter through onto his ministry. And so in the midst of the ministry, we are to follow Jesus. We are to walk as Jesus walked. 
see the examples that Jesus set and apply them to our lives, not trying to manipulate an outcome or ministry or a person, but just being obedient to the Lord as he has set the example that we would follow through in the example. And so we saw Peter's humble beginnings as a simple fisherman. We see his end, and that's what's being described here in John 21, verses 18 through 19. Uh, Tradition tells us that Peter was crucified by Nero, He was crucified, not worthy to be crucified as the Lord was, but he was crucified upside down. Now at the writing of this epistle in 1 Peter, it's about 30 years later from when Jesus met Peter on the Sea of Galilee. It's around the time of the start of the persecution of the church by the insane emperor of Rome, Nero. It was Nero who executed both Peter and Paul. He started executing Christians, decided he enjoyed it and went on a a binge. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 24 through 25, though, we're told that don't think that this to be a strange thing. Jesus said, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the household Beelzebub, or that which is of the devil, how much more so will they call those of his household? And what Jesus is saying is, just as they persecute me, persecuted me, do not be surprised when they persecute you. Don't be surprised when the United States of America no longer has a desire and even is contrary to the word of God. Don't be surprised when you want to share through a spirit of love somebody else the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and not only do they reject you, but they persecute you because you do so. Because they have done these things to the Lord Jesus Christ, so they will do them to us. This epistle was penned within the last five years of Peter's death. All this lends towards the purpose of Peter writing this epistle and who he is writing it to. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, Peter tells us that he is currently residing in Babylon. That was more than likely, most theologians agree, that he was living in Rome. As he was living in Rome, he was making an observation and seeing the persecution as it started to intensify. Now, I was just kind of speaking to somebody, I don't remember who, I don't, can't remember that long. I can remember the Word of God, but everything else kind of a blur. But... We see the things that are going on in this nation, and we look at the negativity towards Christianity, and we see how how they'll even go the extra mile for somebody of the Islamic faith, whatever it might be, but then when it comes to Christianity, there's this venom that is directed towards it. We're experiencing these things. We are seeing these things. As we experience these things and see these things, not surprised about these things because these things have been told to us, we've got to be preparing the future generation for these things as well. Because as I look back, I see how things, don't really remember the 50s, I was born in 57, see how things were in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and see how they're picking up steam as far as anti-Christianity, spirit of anti-Christ, how that is multiplying and going forward, projecting ahead, seems like it's going to get pretty bad. But our God, our God is going to prevail, and he prevails through his people who he raises up, so those whom he strengthens, those who he instructs, and those who he uses. And so just as we had these cute kids that were up here, and they're designed to be that way or else you wouldn't really care much for them, but it's false advertising. I know a few of those kids. At least I know their grandparents. (coughs) 
But these are going to be the ones that are probably facing stiffer opposition than we even face today. And so as this is, well, it's the current church, but these are the leaders of the future church. We need to be praying. We need to be found diligent. Well, that's Peter's mindset. Because as he's seeing this persecution that's going on in Rome, he's made the determination that he's going to write, and this is what First and Second Peter are, he's going to write these epistles to the churches that are in Asia Minor or in the area, and we see these churches that are mentioned here in verse 1, the area of modern-day Turkey. And what he's doing is he's preparing them for this persecution. Whatever the thing, whatever is going on in Rome is sure at some point to go out into the rest of the world. And as God has done a great work in Asia Minor, Peter's of the mindset, I need to prepare those churches for this difficulty, for this hardship, for this persecution that is coming. I pray that we're being prepared for the persecution that's coming in our lifetime, but once again, also preparing our kids for the very same thing. And so the theme of this book, this epistle, is with intense persecution on the horizon, the Lord, through the Apostle Peter, is giving instruction on how a Christian is to conduct himself in a hostile environment. And again, this should be very applicable to our jobs, to our neighborhoods, our families, wherever it is that you go and people are contrary to Christ. The key verse of this epistle is chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. Beloved, and so he's speaking to the church, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is, he's speaking future tense here, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. These sufferings, these persecutions are supposed to happen. So as they're happening, we know that we're in the will of God. What's one of the biggest problems in the church today? It gets hard. It gets difficult. People turn mean, and we pull back. Must not be the will of God. It got hard. It's supposed to be hard. You're supposed to be surrounded with opposition. You're supposed to be attacked. Those are things that are common to the Christian faith. Matter of fact, we know that we're in the will of God and moving in a good direction as those things are going on. So to understand Peter's purpose, it's better to understand the message Peter is trying to get across to us. The various ideas we look at in this letter will be on the backdrop of a coming persecution. So starting in verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He's speaking to believers who have been dispersed across that area, dispersion, and what has happened, these churches have popped up and people are growing, those areas are being evangelized, but again, Peter's of the mindset of preparation. So the first thing that we see here is the identity and authority of the writer. He refers to himself. Peter's finally been able to embrace this title, an apostle. Now, the, the title of apostle is really twofold. There is the office of apostle, and there is the adjective of apostle. An adjective is a descriptive word of a noun, such as handsome Pastor Mike. And so, handsome would be the adjective. Well, apostle, it's an office, but it's also a description. Now, those of the Bible described as apostles, some of them because they hold the office of apostle, others just simply because it's the, the um, description or the adjective of an apostle. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm still getting over this cold, and I've got this little dry cough that won't go away. <coughs> 
First, we see there's the twelve and the apostle Paul, who, Matthias as well, who are described as apostles. That would be the office of apostle. We see Barnabas described as an apostle. We see Andronicus and Junia described as apostles. Silas and Timothy described as apostles. The word apostle just simply means one sent under orders. It's one who reports to a superior, receives that commission, receives those orders, and in turn goes out for the purpose of executing those orders. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. So even Jesus is referred to as an apostle. Why? because he was under the most supreme of orders to deliver the gospel to all of humanity. And as far as you are concerned, you need to consider the orders that have been given to you. Matthew chapter 28, verses 8, I'm sorry, 19 through 20. Go therefore, since all authority has been given to the Lord, and since he has that authority to give the order, we're told, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So that order extends throughout the church age, and he says, amen, or so be it. And so we do not hold the office of apostle, but we do have the description of an apostle. Everybody here is somebody who is under orders. Under orders, if Jesus Christ is truly the Lord of your life, then the orders that he has given will be that which you will embrace, that which you will follow through, and that which you will do. An adjective is the description of apostle that fits all Christians, but as far as the office of apostle, in the local newspaper, the Daily Bulletin, if you look at the religious section in some of these churches that are out there, you'll see this week we'll have the apostle so-and-so. Well, there's two things to consider there. Number one, he's a false teacher of some sort. No man should call himself an apostle, but all men, all mankind, should consider themselves to be apostles. And so in actuality, yeah, he is an apostle. We're all apostles. We're all under orders by the Lord. But more than likely, they've made an office description of that particular person, and that ought not to be. As far as the office of apostle, it closed with either, and it depends which side of the argument you stand upon, either the apostle Paul or Matthias. We see Matthias in Acts chapter 2. And so another part of Peter's identity we see again in verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of dispersion. Now he's this minister, he's this elder. Peter has taken up that mantle. And you can see that finally the teachings of Christ as we go through this epistle, he's gotten. And he realizes what, just as Paul has said, what has been delivered to me, I must deliver to others. And that's who he is speaking to, these pilgrims. Pilgrims aren't people with funny hats and big buckles. They're everyone whose home is not in the place where they are currently residing. That makes us pilgrims. Our home is not here. This is a temporary dwelling place. Our home is in heaven. It's at that place that Jesus has gone to prepare for us. And so it's important what we see here now. Joining together the coming persecution that's going to be coming upon the church but also how a born-again believer is able to have that peace that surpasses understanding as that is truly coming. Peter's not warning them so they can take up and run and hide. 
Peter's warning them so that they can be prepared and understand what's going on. And so what we're going to be looking at for a big part of our study today is this theological point based upon strength and persecution. It's called the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election. And you see the doctrine of election married together with persecution a lot. In the book of Romans chapter 8, won't be up on the board, but in Romans chapter 8, we're told down in verse 28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And you can wonder, well, how can all things? Well, God is the Lord over all things. But also, he goes on in verse 29, to whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn amongst Many brethren, moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and those whom he justified, these he also glorified. So the Lord, looking forward into eternity, he has chosen us, and I'll get into what that means in a minute, but he's chosen us, and those whom he has chosen, he'll never leave or forsake. Matter of fact, in Romans chapter 8, at the end of the chapter, verses 35 through 39, He'll present the question, what is able to separate us from the love of God? And the short answer is nothing. And so as we're going through all the difficulties of today, the persecutions, where's God in the midst of all of this? He's right on the throne. Nothing happens apart from the will of God. He's working a plan out that I may never understand until I'm in his presence in heaven. But nonetheless, I know that he loves me and he'll never forsake me. (coughs) So verse 2 It speaks of the elect according to, I'm back in 1 Peter chapter 1, the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. As I pointed out earlier, it's important to see that we see the totality of the Trinity here. A lot of times when we see the totality of the Trinity, it's for the purpose of us understanding that this is the complete and total will and power of God that is directed towards the concept that is presented. And so the result of the knowledge of this doctrine, and it's called the doctrine of election, and we see here at the end of this verse, what is to be the result of the knowledge of the doctrine of election? Multiplied grace and peace. Because if you're in the middle of tribulation and you don't understand grace, you're just thinking, well, I'm just getting what I deserve. You think you're going through this period of punishment. You're not going through a period of punishment. You're going through a period of refinement. And and then as far as, as, as peace be multiplied, when you come to a true understanding, you know that there's nothing man can do to me that is apart from the will of God. And it's God who is able to condemn my soul for all of eternity, but because of his grace has chosen not to do that, that's where I find my hope and that's where I find my strength. The improper usage of the knowledge of the doctrine of election has caused turbulence throughout the church for hundreds of years. This is a point that has been argued and argued and argued even so much more. The church has, churches have become split over it even until recently. It's just one of those hot button topics. If you start trying to put God in a box, if you try, start trying to understand these things according to human terms, 
I'll try to give the best explanation that I can only based upon biblical terms. But the one thing I know, the one thing I can never forget, John chapter 10, verses 28 through 29, nobody is able to snatch me out of the Father's hand. Isaiah 49, 16, see I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. And so, as far as the doctrine of election or adoption, however it is that you want to refer to it, I think adoption is a very good picture. Parents and their natural child and parents and their adopted child. One shares the nature and the essence of his parents. I was here last week, in case you guys noticed. We were in Oregon visiting family, some cousins that I haven't seen in, I believe, it's around 25 years. And as we got there, there was my cousin Jimmy, my cousin Roseanne, Jerry, and, uh, and Claire. And we all got together, and it was kind of a cool thing. Although we've been separated for, again, about 25 years, there was that feeling of family. You know, there was that we had the nature and the essence of one another. Some of those things were good, some of those things were bad, but nonetheless, we were together as a family. Because, well, we were all byproducts of the same grandparents anyway. Now, the adopted children are of different parents, but have been brought into the other family. And so I look at this in a spiritual sense. Jesus Christ, he's the natural son. He shares the nature and the essence of the father. But as far as you and I were told in Galatians chapter 4, that we're the adopted children. Now, we see as far as the adopted children may look a little bit different have a different DNA, without a doubt, ain't none of us God, nor will we ever be God, but we have been brought into this family as God's children. All the children that were brought into the family have been done so in a spirit of love. I know some people that have adopted children, and those children have been integrated into the family, and I see where they love those children just as much as they love their natural children. And so, what happens over a period of time? Well, the natural child, this would be just something he naturally grows into, but even the adopted child, over a period of time, they'll come to have some of the same mannerisms, influence, and even looks of a parent. They see this in married couples after married for a period of 30 years. They kind of start even looking like one another. They're acting like one another. My wife, one day, will be bald and we'll be a set of twins, and you won't be able to tell the difference between her. Hopefully that doesn't happen, nor will she grow a beard, but nonetheless... There are certain things in the Bible, though, that we have to realize we're not going to be able to understand. I'm not going to have complete understanding. And we were told that early in Deuteronomy 29.29. It says, the secret things, the things that God has chosen to not believe, he says, they belong to the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. And so there's certain things that God just simply has not chosen to reveal to us. But you know what? You've got a lifetime of learning with the things that have been spelled out, the things that have been plainly given to us. But what do we do? We're looking in here for codes and secret things. There's no codes in here. There's no secret things in here. The codes and the secret things are the Lord's, if there's truly any such thing as a code. But, you know, you'll have somebody who writes a a book on the secret codes of the Bible, and he'll sell millions of copies because, well, this isn't enough. I want to know the secret things. Yeah, but you don't even know the plain things now. Because, once again, all the plain things, there's a lifetime of learning here. Matter of fact, um, 
not tonight, not next Sunday night, but the Sunday night after, actually we're having movie night that Sunday night, it's a men's retreat, but the Sunday after that, we're starting 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 1 Chronicles. After 1 Chronicles, guess which book we're going to do? There you go, you guys are sharp today. Just making sure you're still awake and listening. But you know what happens after 2 Chronicles? There's no 3 Chronicles. After 2 Chronicles, we're done. We've been through the whole Bible. We've taught verse by verse through the whole Bible. It's only taken us about, well, by the time we finish that, probably about 20 and a half years. But do we just go look for something else? Do we then start looking for the codes? Does anybody here have the Bible memorized? Do you have the themes of all the Bible memorized? There may be some people here, but the majority of us probably don't. Sometimes I've got it. Oh, Christine does. She raised her hand. <laughs> uh, you know, I've got to go back and reference these things. And so we've got to realize there's a lifetime of learning here. I'll never truly understand the totality of the Trinity. I don't understand why God loves me, and I don't understand why God loves you. We're imperfect people. I don't understand the peace of God because it's called the peace of God that surpasses understanding. I don't understand the doctrine of election completely and totally and how it jives together with us having a choice, but the Bible does speak of both. We are told here, as as elsewhere, that God does elect those who are to be saved. In John chapter 6, verse 44, it says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up that last day. John chapter 12 says, If I be lifted up, if I be placed upon the cross, I will draw all men unto myself. Matthew chapter 22, verse 14 tells us, For many are called, but few are chosen. And so, really, the short answer to all of this is that all of humanity is called, but only the saved are going to be chosen. How does that work? Well, we're also told when this election process was taken place. If you're a born-again believer here today, we are told specifically when you were chosen. We're told this in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, to him before, or him, God chose us before the foundation of the world. This speaks of the foreknowledge of God. Again, Romans chapter 8, verse 29, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, and the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages of our, our, for our glory. And so what is election? Election is based upon, this is important to understand, it's based upon the foreknowledge of God. God didn't just have all of these embryos sitting before him and say, oh, I'll pick that one, now that one's gone. No, pick, you know, it wasn't about that. It was about his foreknowledge. What is the foreknowledge of God? It's the most amazing vision that you can even imagine. It's a vision that is not constrained by time. It's a vision that is not constrained by anything that constrains human beings, but that which is unique only to our holy God. We've given a little bit of a picture of it in Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the high and lofty one who, and I refer to this a lot, but who inhabits eternity. We're told that God, think about that. We're told that God inhabits eternity. That right now, God is in existence a year from now. And, and, and make it even a little bit more personal. Right now, God is present in my tomorrow, in my next week. So as I've stated so many times before, the confidence that that should give us, 
I'm entering in to a work God is already doing. And so that would be how he would have this perfect foreknowledge. Think of it like this, the Rose Parade. I've actually never been to a Rose Parade and don't think I ever will. But nonetheless, they're beautiful things. Watch it on TV, you've got front row seats. But let's just say you're at the Rose Parade. Oh, let's make it the Ontario, City of Ontario Parade, make it local. As you're sitting there on the side of the curb, you see the floats as they're coming, as they're there, and a little bit as they go. Now, you don't know what's happening at the beginning, and you don't know what's happening at the end, because you only got this little picture of what is happening during the parade. Now, God is as if you were sitting above this, and God would be able to look and see at the beginning of the parade, the point of parade that you're inhabiting at that point, and he also knows how the parade is going to finish. He sees the totality of the parade. And so it's why he's able to have this foreknowledge of our callings, of our election, because God knows the choices that we make before we make the choice. And so we also have to understand just one thing and need to interject here. The word election implies that there must also be some who are not elected. If the doctrine of election is true, is not then the antithesis of that true as well? If a sovereign God chose some for salvation, then did he choose some for death? The Bible tells me no. And I'll tell you how all this works out in a minute. But we are told in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all of mankind. Jesus, or God, so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. And so why would he do that for the, all of the world if he choose some, chose some to die? Well, God never chose anybody to die, although he knew who would. Again, he inhabits eternity. He knows of the choices that we're going to make. Why would God choose somebody? I mean, just this makes no sense whatsoever, but trying to understand it in human terms. Why would he choose somebody from the foundation of the world whom was going to refuse his grace, his gospel, at some point in history? He wouldn't do that. That makes absolutely no sense. He didn't cause that person to not believe. That makes no biblical sense whatsoever. But he knew of the choice that they were going to make. And he also knew of the choice that the born-again believers here were going to make. And so he chose us. And so I've got to understand how that works. There's not going to be anybody who's going to be able to offer an excuse before God. How could I possibly be saved, Lord? You condemned me from the beginning, so this isn't fair. Well, the Bible tells us that God is just, so everybody has the opportunity as the gospel is presented. And really, this is the tragedy of judgment in the face of grace. As God's grace goes out to all, nobody deserves to hear the gospel and to receive the gospel, but by the grace of God we have, the only way that we truly understand the magnitude of that is through those who refuse it and the judgment of God as well. Because as I said before, you don't understand the grace of God unless the judgment of God exists. If there's no judgment, then why in the world would we possibly need grace? So this being the case, it stands to reason that man would have some ability of a choice as well. Paul wrote, because of the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Why would we persuade men if they had absolutely no choices at all? Well, they do have a choice based upon the gospel. Now, when I asked my wife to marry me, 
what made it interesting is that she had a choice to say yes or no. At least I let her believe that. I chose her. I asked her, and she chose me, and that she responded in the positive. Now, I was kind of a coward because I made sure she was going to say yes before I bought the ring and everything. But nonetheless, there was this choosing of her and there was this choosing of me. God has chosen us in that he presented the gospel to us, knowing what the end result was going to be. But also, we made that choice for the Lord. In John chapter 11, verse 26, it says, And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So, who is going to be saved? Those whom God, who lives in the time of man's day of salvation, chooses. How do we know who God is going to choose? I've got young kids. I've got young grandkids, you may say. How do I know if God has chosen them? Well, anyone who believes and receives the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is saved, and so they were chosen. And so what that tells me is I have a great responsibility in this matter to teach them and to train them up in the way that they should go because it all hinges upon belief in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I have this great responsibility. Well, why even bother if God already knows? God has chosen to use us of the means in which the gospel is applied to a life for the purpose of salvation. Now, if I keep quiet, won't somebody else bring it? Do you really want that responsibility before God? Yeah, God's going to save He's going, to, I'm sorry, he's going to present the gospel, even if you won't. He'll bring a donkey or a rock or whatever it might be, the Bible says. But nonetheless, there's no greater privilege than being used by God for the salvation, for the eternity of somebody else. And so, Romans chapter 10, verse 13, whoever, whoever, it doesn't say just to save who calls upon the Lord, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Who is not chosen? Anyone who does not believe and receive the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. John 3.18, he believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now when he says he who does not believe is condemned already, that means man is condemned from the womb. Now I believe in an age of accountability. I believe that age is probably 18, I believe it's 20 actually. But nonetheless, that's beside the point. We need to be mindful of there's got to come that day that our children enter into the kingdom of heaven through an understanding of the gospel and a receiving or a believing of the gospel. I need to make sure, as much as depends upon me, that that opportunity is presented. I'm not talking about me as the pastor. I'm talking about me again as a father or grandfather. John MacArthur said, God's sovereign election and man's exercising of responsibility in choosing Jesus Christ seem opposed and irreconcilable. That is why so many earnest, well-meaning Christians throughout the history of the church have floundered trying to reconcile them. Since the problem cannot be resolved by our finite mind, the result is always to compromise one truth in favor of the others or weaken both by trying to take a position somewhere between them. And so you'll have one camp that says, God either chooses you or he doesn't. You have absolutely no choice in the matter. To even insinuate that you have a choice is to do damage to the sovereignty of God. And then you've got the other camp who believes, you know what? 
I, I make the choices around here. And, and I make the decision. And so my salvation is based upon me. Well, both of these people have an improper perspective of really what's happening here. We've got to humble ourselves in the sight of a sovereign God. I need to understand that salvation is completely and totally based upon the work that Christ has done upon the cross, and there's nothing that's ever going to change that. I understand that God knows the result of my decision for salvation. I, I realize that, and that's, that's held in a very safe place in the hands of God. But as much as depends upon me, I, I need to make sure that I stay faithful to what I know is real and true from God. As far as my decision of the gospel, as far as continuing to walk in the knowledge of the Lord, these things are real and these things are true and these things need to be considered and diligently done in our Christian lives. Not for salvation, but because of salvation for the born-again believer, but for the person who is not saved all the way up to the point of death, I've got to realize that there's opportunity there. I saw it in my own father's life, the grace of God that saved him on the last day of his life. And so the doctrine of election of man by God and the doctrine of man's choice are both of God. These are two doctrines, although they may seem contrary to one another and impossible to blend, but through the power of God, by the Holy Spirit, God is able to do so. Matter of fact, once again, if you try to break them off together, you do damage to the word of God and the doctrine of salvation. It's up to God to harmonize them, and it's up to us to believe them, to see these things in the word and understand that God has laid these things before us. And although I may not completely understand them, I need to be receptive of them, just like the Apostle Paul. Paul in the book of Romans was writing some of the most deepest theology that exists in the Bible. And he gets to chapter 11, the last part of chapter 11, and there's a turning point here where there's the giving of theology, then he's going to speak of the doing of the theology. But it's as if Paul just kind of sits back and considers what, is say, what he's just said, he considers what the Spirit has spoken through him. And he comes to this place in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Verse 34, this is from the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah. For who has known the mind of God, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. Verse 36, for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. The important part of our study here today is for you just to receive of the doctrine of, uh, of election. You're never going to truly completely understand it in detail, but understand that Christ died for me. Although I was a sinner, he still came and he still gave of his life so that I would have eternal life. But again, it's whoever believed in him would not perish but be saved. And whoever believes, well, faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the word of God. And whoever has made a confession of faith, that's a repentance of sin and a coming to Christ, it's that person who has eternal life. And it's there that we've got to make the decision that we're right with God. Not thinking that you're far from God and can't be saved because there's not a, right, there's not a person who's ever been born or even born again that was good in God's sight. It's never about being good enough to be saved. It's about our understanding how bad you are and the necessity to be saved. Yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
And what are the blessings that we have in the midst of persecution because of this doctrine? Well, as we go back to 1 Peter, we see grace and peace in the fullest measure. Why this grace and peace? Because your salvation, again, is part of the work of God, his holy trinity, or the holy trinity. How can any man touch what the totality of God has done in our lives? And so Peter's writing to these people, and what is he doing? He's meeting these people at the point of their salvation, that they would know and understand that regardless of what's going around them, regardless of the laws that are being made in the land, regardless of the persecution and the prosecution that is happening in a society, you're saved, you're God's, you're not of this world. Your, your home is that place where Christ went to prepare for you. And you are going to experience hardship. Those are going to be realities in your life. Two weeks ago, when we closed out James, we saw the reality. Everybody here, you're going to get sick and die at some point in your life. But that's okay. My life is hidden with Christ. And I can have a confidence in the midst of the hardship. I can have a, a fullness of understanding of the peace of God that surpasses understanding as I'm going through those difficult days. And just as God is using Peter to prepare them for that, those in Asia Minor, as he sees this wave of persecution concentrically going out from Rome, we see it happening even in our own backyards today, even in our city, in our state, and in our nation it's not a strange thing that this should happen. It's the world acting as the world acts. And guess what? It's going to get a lot worse. Peace of God that surpasses understanding, that's the born-again believer who is able to have peace as he's going through so difficult times. Ephesians 2, verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them, that we should go forth and do them, fulfill the commission that God has given us. Father, once again, we just see the richness of this epistle. And again, it's just such a blessing, Peter. We see his immaturity in the Gospels. And the book of Acts, we see this is a man now filled with the Holy Spirit. And now we see his maturity, Lord, in the work that you've done in him. And now, Lord, the work that you're doing through him. And Lord, I pray that we would understand that none of us are beyond what you have done in Peter's life. You want to bring us to the point of maturity. You want to bring us to the point of strengthening others. You want us, you want us to come to the point of fulfilling our calling and your commission in our lives. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who are busy about doing these things. Lord, just to sit around and call ourselves a Christian is... That really the description of who a Christian is? Peter, Lord, you wouldn't allow Peter to go back to his old life. You wouldn't allow Peter just to sit in a boat throwing a net. Lord, you met him there, you convicted him, but Lord, you brought him back into the ministry and you used him in amazing ways. Father, use us to your glory. Lord, I just lift up this congregation today and I just thank you, Father, for the brothers and sisters that we have. May we be of the mindset of strengthening one another so as we go out from this place, Lord, we're able to minister to those who are perishing. But right now, Father, we have this opportunity. Just, just in case there, there's anybody here, there's anybody here who has yet to receive you as Lord and Savior, who understands this, how amazing these concepts are, but these concepts are offered to the person who is born again. 
And I don't know who's called, and I don't know who you've elected, Lord. The only thing I know is, is that we are to give the opportunity. And so we give the opportunity. And I just pray, if God has spoken to your heart today, that you would be receptive and that you would be open, that you would consider yourself and realize the sinner that you are, that you have fallen short of the glory of God, but also understand the magnitude of the grace of God, that God came and died, not for the good people, they don't need anybody to die for them, he came and died for the sinner, he came and died for you. And I pray that you would be open to receiving of the grace that God has for you even today. And so, Father, I just pray that we would be a people of prayer and high on our prayer list would be those people who are not born again, that they would come into the family, that they would be adopted in. And so now, as eyes are closed and heads are bowed, if God is speaking to your heart, I'm just going to ask for a response. Because, again, you said, I said earlier, there is to be a public response, and we're going to give that opportunity. The raising of your hand, which I'll ask for in a minute, does not save your soul, but it's because your soul is saved that we reach up to our holy God. It's really an act of obedience, but it's also an act of ministry that, people, that God has touched the hearts of people here today. And so if God is speaking to you, if you're convicted, if you've opened your heart to Christ in this place today, this morning, lift your hand. I'm just going to acknowledge it. I'm just going to acknowledge it, and then we're going to pray for one another together. Is there anybody here today? Is there anybody here today who God is impressing upon your heart that you need to reach up to him? Don't allow this opportunity to pass you by. Just just raise your hand. Eyes are closed and heads are bowed. This is between you and God. It's a response to the work that God is doing. Hard thing to do, but a necessary thing to do. It's one of those days that we're able to look back and understand and know we did what God has called us to do at that moment. And again, if you're in the fellowship hall, you can raise your hand there. It's between you and the Lord. Before I pray, before I close, is there anybody here? Is there anybody at all? Anybody at all? Just, just lift your hand. Anybody who God is speaking to? Anybody? Don't allow this moment to get past. I see your hand to my right. Anybody else at all? Anybody at all? It takes a lot of boldness to lift your hand. Even eyes closed, heads are bowed. It's a hard thing because... It's our lives, and it's our lives that we're giving back to God who has first given us life. Anybody at all before we close? I see your hand off to my left. I see your hand to my left. Anybody else? Again, this is a response to God, not a response to Mike. Anybody else before we close? Let's pray. Father, you have seen these hands that have gone up before you, Lord. And Lord, it's all about a response to your spirit speaking to the hearts and souls of men and women. And it's just such a joy, Father. And and it's not just those who have raised their hands. I pray, Father, that we would count all of ourselves in those who have heard from God in this place and now have that responsibility to act forth in obedience. But specifically, I do lift up those who have lifted their hands. I pray, Father, that you would fill them with your spirit. I pray, Father, that you would use them in good and amazing ways. And as you do, Lord, I just pray that you are glorified in and through their lives. 
And so, Father, just go with them. Go before them in their lives. I pray, Father, for the things that they experience and the difficulty and the attacks that come, that, Father, you enable them to be more than conquerors throughout their lives. And so, Father, we just thank you for this morning. I thank you, Lord, for bringing myself and my wife back here safely. Just pray, Father, that you're glorified through this ministry, through your ministry here in Ontario, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? As is our habit, when somebody comes to the Lord or returns back to the Lord, as an act of unity, we say what's called the sinner's prayer. The sinner's prayer doesn't save a soul. A soul says the sinner's prayer is because he is saved. And again, as we have all come into the kingdom of God through faith, really it's a show of solidarity. It's to strengthen the faith and encourage the people that have given their hearts to the Lord today, understanding now they are part of a unified family. So just repeat after me. Father, I know that I'm a sinner. Father, I know that you save sinners. I know that you saved me. Enable, Lord, me to walk with you all the days of my life that I would glorify you through a life that reflects your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, as Sean announced, or at least as he was supposed to announce, (laughs) uh, today is the last day to sign up here for the men's breakfast at Calvary Chapel, Chino Valley. Uh, Next Saturday, there's a men's breakfast going on. Uh, Pastor David Rosales will be teaching. Randy Walls, Calvary Chapel Upland will be teaching, and I'll be teaching there. And I just think it's a real neat time to get together as men and to celebrate that. So today will be the last day that you can sign up here at our church. I believe you could possibly still sign up at Chino Valley later on. Um, And then in uh, two weeks, we'll be going on our men's retreat. Um, Next Sunday will be the last day to sign up for that as well. We have a mandatory meeting to describe how things are going to be going down and, and, and moving on in that. Uh, Tonight we're going to be in Psalm 119 again. Uh, We've started the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark on Thursday nights, and we're just going to be pushing forward in the Word of God. There will be a couple up here to pray. I'll be in the back. God bless you all. As we sing this last song, make it a song of praise and a response to what God did in your heart.
Jesus.